0: All right, there are five uh, doctrines of grace as they've sort of been traditionally laid out. They can be represented, of course, by the acronym TULIP, which we've been working our way through, total depravity, which taught us why we need God's grace to be sovereign and powerful, Uh, unconditional election, how the Lord conceived of grace before the world was ever made, Um, limited atonement, how God achieved and, and merited that grace at the cross, irresistible grace how God applied it and then tonight the perseverance of the saints or how God preserves his people in his grace until the end and so that's why we turn to this little paragraph from Paul's letter to the Philippians Uh, sometimes the letter to the Philippians is referred to as the joy epistle or the epistle of joy the letter of joy And you might be able to remember in your mind some of the phrases that Paul uses that would lead people to call the letter that. For example, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, right? He's very adamant. I want you to rejoice. Rejoice is a commandment that God gives to his people. Uh, he's able to command it because he's given us his son. He's given us the gospel. And out of a belief in the gospel should overflow joy like, like fountains and like a river coming out of our heart. And so Paul is over and over again telling them to keep their joy up. Uh, he himself says, I've learned how to be content whether I have a little bit or a lot. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I have or it doesn't matter what I don't have because I've learned the key, which is that I have Christ. Christ. In Christ, I can do all things, and in Christ, I have all things. And so I rejoice, though I'm losing, and I rejoice, though I'm winning. Now, why is Paul so concerned about these Philippians and their joy? What is it about their experience that would lead him to write a letter mainly about that? Well, it's this, and it has everything to do with the perseverance of the saints. The church at Philippi had a dramatic beginning. The planting story with the church at Philippi was amazing. You might remember some of these details from the book of Acts. It began with a prayer meeting by a riverbank. And one woman heard the sermon and believed. Her name was Lydia. Lydia was not just any woman, she was a pretty well to do woman. And so when she believed, her whole household came into the church. They were all baptized as she believed and were added to the number. Not long afterwards, that tiny band of disciples continued to preach all around the city. And a girl who is oppressed by a demon, who is being used basically by her slave owners for fortune telling, was set free from her demon oppression. But that, of course, led to the fortune teller's loss of income. And so a sort of riot ensues. Paul and Silas end up in jail where they sing psalms and hymns in the middle of the night after they've been beaten within an inch of their life. And guess what happens? In the prison. Y'all remember? The shaking and the prisoners, uh, their chains are loosed. And there's the jailer trying to take his own life when Paul And Silas stop him and share the gospel with him. And guess what? The grizzled Roman soldier gives his life to Christ. And his family is baptized. What a church-planning story. Wow. Lives are being transformed. You could not ask for a better beginning, one that was more clearly marked by God's grace. And yet, what had begun to happen over time? Well, the same thing that happens in your Christian life and mine and every church that has ever existed under the sun. What happens next? Big explosion to begin and then what? What do you think? Time. Trouble. Struggle. By the time Paul writes this letter, he's basically trying to just break up fights between the people within the church who can't get along with each other, which is why he sounds this note of joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Don't forget, you've got Jesus still, and this is the reason why you were here, and this is the reason why you're going to make it to the end. And that's that's what he says there in verse 6, that the rock-solid basis of Christian joy even in spite of the fact that you face many dangers many toils many snares in your Christian life the rock-solid foundation of joy is this I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion to completion until the day of Jesus Christ what started with a bang and seems to be fizzling out has not really fizzled out God is still at work and he cannot fail to continue to be at work the perseverance of the saints. Let me, let me just break down that sentence a little bit and then I'll, I'll answer the questions that are in the bulletin. But first I just want to get you clearly on the same page with me in terms of that one little sentence there in verse 6. Paul says first, I am sure of this. Um, is Paul, you know, does he doubt what he's about to say? Any doubt in, at all in his voice? No, uh, he says, I am sure. He's got a certainty that what he's about to say is real, that it represents the truth, that it's not just true about him, it's true about them, and it's true about all Christians. I am sure of this. What is he sure of? Well, God's work. He who began the work, who began it? God. Remember, it was obvious who had begun it in, in Philippi because the, the beginning of that church was just amazing. It was full of the fireworks of the power of God. Well, Paul says, if God began it, you can be sure, as I am sure, that he will finish it. He'll bring it to completion. What will he bring to completion? This is where we really got to get on the same page. What is it that's going to be brought to completion? What does it say? What does it it, well, does it say every good work? I don't know. Maybe you have a different translation than mine, but the good work, a good work. A good work. All right. And then This is where we've got to get on the same page. Well, what is the good work or a good work that, that Paul is describing here? Whatever it is he has in each individual person. Right. Yes, exactly right. The, the good work or the good work that he refers to is the same one God began when they first became a Christian. And it's the one that he's continuing to bring to completion. That means Paul can't be describing in just in general salvation as a generality. And the reason for that is that salvation has many aspects. Some of the aspects of salvation are not process-oriented to where... Paul would say, he who began it will complete it because some of the things in salvation are both began and completed at the same instant. Somebody tell me some of those great things that God does that are began and completed all at once. Justification. You are 100% forgiven, 100% accepted only because of what Christ has done for you. There is no process at all involved in that. He's not talking about justification. What else is instantaneous? Adoption. Adoption. You're either adopted or you're not. And if you're adopted, you're all the way adopted. You're not partially adopted, you're all the way adopted. Uh, we could say the same thing about being born again. right? You're either born again or you're not born again. Right? A child is either born or unborn. You can't have it both, partly born, partly not born. It's born or unborn. Someone is either born again or they're not yet born again. It is an instantaneous thing. What is Paul describing? He's describing those aspects of salvation that are process-driven, which is what he goes on to describe in this whole section where where he shares with them what his prayer is every single day, every time he prays for the Ephesians. I yearn for you, verse 8, with the affection of Jesus verse 9 it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent so you may be pure and blameless to the day of Jesus Christ that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ that's the good work what do we call that? sanctification what Paul's point here is, is this he is absolutely sure That all those for whom God has begun the work of sanctification, God will also complete the work of sanctification. Which means, if you and I find that he has begun the work of sanctification in us, we can share Paul's certainty that God is not going to abandon us or leave us half sanctified. He's going to bring us to the full extent of sanctification. Now, at what point will he bring us to that? He tells us with a great little phrase there at the end of verse 6. What's the phrase? The day of Jesus Christ. What does that refer to? That day he comes back. That day of the resurrection. That day of the judgment. That day of the new heavens and the new earth. The new creation that God brings full of righteousness. The day of the Lord. That means all of us are on a process that lasts from the moment we are first born again to the moment Christ returns of being made, remade into the image of God after the likeness of Jesus and God is so committed to that work that once he begins it he will not abort it he will not stop doing it and that becomes the rock solid basis why Christians can rejoice remember the kids song He's still working on me to make me what he wants me to be. Is that right? Is that how it goes? you remember that one? Is that just me? Okay. Can you see me tonight? Because I can't see you. <laughs> when it gets dark outside, you know, and the, the lights become more hard to see through. So I'm, I'm trusting that you're still with me. Yeah. The Lord... Who started the work of sanctification will complete it. Therefore, you can have joy knowing that you will persevere to the end. And so, let's look at the three questions I have in the bulletin. Now we're ready to talk about what perseverance means, what perseverance depends on, and then, lastly, critically, what perseverance does not mean. We got to talk about that before we get done tonight. All right, so, first of all, what exactly does perseverance mean? Well, we've already done a lot of work. Uh, leading up to it Um, by the way before I dive in even, even more you might want to if you're interested in this take a look at the back of the hymnal on page 858 it might be helpful for you to have it out and you may at least just look at it so you know it's there you'll find there the confession of faith that is our confession as a church And this is the only of the five points that we've gone over that our confession has an entire chapter devoted to. It's chapter 17, found on page 858, and roughly tonight, the three questions that we're answering correspond to the three paragraphs of that chapter. So you might want to have it open, and you can answer my questions more freely and fully if you have it open. Uh, Well, we've already kind of staked out our, you know, our claim here. Which is that the perseverance of the saints means that God himself is committed to preserving the process of sanctification. To continuing the process of sanctification in the lives of his people until the very end. Right? Now that means that common ideas about uh, the perseverance of the saints might not be exactly what the Bible means by the term. For example, you'll hear this phrase a lot, once saved, always saved. Have you ever heard that phrase? It's the most popular way to define the perseverance of the saints, and and it's true as far as it goes, but what do people normally think when they hear the phrase once saved, always saved? You You can do whatever you want, right? People think, oh, I know what you mean. You can do whatever you want. Okay, did you read what we just read? God who began the good work will complete it. What is the good work? Does it say, I'm praying for you, Philippians, that you might be able to do whatever you want. Praise God. No. He says, no, I want your love to abound more and more. That's what perseverance is. That God would keep us growing in our ability to love him and to love one another more and more. There's that sense that a little bit of love ought to grow to more love and more love and more love as our lives go on. You ought to be better at loving 20 years in than you were when you first started. There should be a a progress that is made. Uh, Perseverance of the saints does not mean because I prayed a prayer one time to ask Jesus in my heart, I'm guaranteed to go to heaven. Why does it not mean that? Yeah, words aren't magic. That's one reason. What's another reason? What's that? Sure. Yeah. Did you mean it? That is a key thing. Is it real? I mean, did it? Was it really the cry of a heart trusting itself to to a faithful Savior? Or was it just someone who was scared, pressured, overly burdened with guilt, and it it seemed like an easy way to get out of the guilt? Was it peer pressure because everybody else around you was doing it? I mean, of course, at, at the end of the day, God knows the answer to these questions. We can't look inside someone's heart and tell the answer for them. God alone knows it. But the fact remains, many people claim to be Christians who aren't. And so the doctrine in the Bible is not as long as you've claimed to be a Christian at some point in your life, you're going to make it to heaven. The doctrine is this. If you really are a Christian, God has begun to transform you into the image of Christ and he won't stop transforming you. In other words, real Christians are for life. Professed Christians might not necessarily be for life. That's important. Why is that important to see the difference between those two things? Professed versus real. For life versus maybe not for life. Well, I'll tell you why it's important. Our souls depends on it. And the souls of those we love and care for and are praying for and sharing the gospel with depend on it. And so we should not uh, give ourselves or anybody else false assurance. Um, False assurance actually produces bad fruit in people's lives. It does tend to make people careless. It does tend to make them flippant about the Lord and nonchalant about the things of God. Real assurance is grounded in a beginning of a work of sanctification that the believer loves. I want to become like Jesus. God has actually given me a desire to become like Christ. And he's growing that in me. Now, that's not the only desire I have. My desires to grow like Christ are battling with my desires to be like Stan. However, i got a desire to grow like Christ. And I know that because God has given that in me and he's working in me, he's going to keep working. And and, and I might not be able to see the progress day to day. But when I look back over 10 years, 15 years, I see The Lord has been working. The progress doesn't look like this. It looks more like this. Right? But through all the winding, it is still rising. Because the Lord's hand is at work. That's what it means by the perseverance of the saints. Your love will abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. You're going to grow in your understanding of things. You're going to approve those things that are excellent. And pure and blameless. God's going to teach you how to love what is right. And to be committed to it. And he's going to fill you with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He is going to make you the way he wants you to be. The the kind of person he wants you to be. A saint. The word saint meaning holy. Someone set apart. Someone sanctified. And so simply... Uh, Depending upon a a profession of faith, or a prayer that you prayed, or or a baptism, or anything of that nature, that's not a true conversion, necessarily. Uh, A true conversion is a matter of the heart, that the Lord must initiate and the Lord must bring about. It's not just something that you just profess and then that makes it so. This is especially important in our time of if I profess it, it does make it so. Isn't that the way we think about so many things? If I say it's true, it's true about me. It's my truth. And the scriptures call hogwash on that. There is no such thing as your truth versus my truth. There is merely truth. And uh, it, it does matter whether we are aligned with the truth or not. And we might be and we might not be, but the truth is the truth. God knows the truth, and God doesn't know it in multiplicity. He doesn't know three possible truths. He knows the truth about us and the truth about himself, and he's trying to bring us into line with his truth. And so when God, when Paul says, I'm sure that God will complete it, please remember what it is God is completing. The sinner's prayer as a way to cover over a life of selfishness is a bad idea. And it doesn't come from the scripture. But a heart transformed by grace is what the scriptures proclaim and it offers it to all of us through Jesus. And once received, once given to a person's life, you can share in Paul's certainty. As we see the outward marks or the inward marks of a sanctifying process in us, that can give us even more confidence that the Lord really is with us and really is working. But even sometimes when we don't judge well of our own sanctification, that's why it's important to be in a community in the church where other people might be able to see you more accurately than you see yourself. Some people, by the way, are relentlessly self-critical, like to a very morbid degree. Um, Some aren't, some are. Some need to be told to think poorly of themselves because they think too highly of themselves. (laughs) Uh, others don't need to be told that. They already are thinking too much poorly about themselves. Well, that's why God put us together, because I might be able to see something in you and point it out that you would never acknowledge about yourself and you with me. Wow, I'm, I'm amazed at how the Lord's working in your life, Ryan. Wow, I'm amazed, Mandy, at what God has been doing since I've known you. Those types of things can be a great encouragement to us as we think about what perseverance does, in fact, mean. It's not, it's not just pray a prayer, go to heaven. It's start getting sanctified and you'll be sanctified forever by God's grace. All right, so secondly, let's look at uh, what perseverance depends on. This is ultra critical. We, we cannot get past this. Uh, we've already pointed out the answer. Paul says it is dependent on whom? Verse 6 again. He. Who began will bring it to completion. He. Who is he? God. Um, Perseverance is not, um, listen, this is important. It's not Jesus saved me and now he tagged me and I'm it. You know what I mean by that? A lot of Christians operate this way. Jesus forgave my sins when I received him into my life by faith, and now it's up to me to finish it out. It's up to me to show him how grateful I am by doing all this stuff to prove that I love him. That's not exactly accurate either. What Paul says is, he who began it is also the same one, the very same one who will complete it. The ongoing nature of salvation is just as dependent on God as was the beginning. The Philippians, that their church began with several miracles in a row. Paul is saying the ongoing nature of your spiritual growth also is dependent on miracles. The unseen, hidden miracles of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Don't forget that. God is at work. Our perseverance depends on God's preservation of us in faith by His grace. Our perseverance depends on God's preservation of us by his grace. Because God is a reliable worker, we can rely on the fact that he finishes what he starts. He does it. What would you think about a construction company who only started building but never finished? Would you hire that company? if their portfolio was just a series of pictures of foundations laid. Anybody excited about that? Of course not. That's completely unreputable. It's completely unthinkable, actually, that that would happen. Well, God's kingdom is not based on a bunch of foundations laid that then human beings have tried and failed to build up on top of. What you have in the kingdom of God are foundations that God has laid. And then the building that he has continued to construct in our lives from the beginning all the way to the end. The saints who are in heaven are trophies of what God's grace can do with sinners like us. They're models of how God can take a sinner like me and turn him into a saint or her. Into a glorious being that if we saw them today, we would be tempted to worship them. That's how glorious they have become in the presence of God. Wow. That's the God who's at work inside of us. That's the God who began and who will complete what he began. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, you know, the Bible likes to talk about the Father as the one from whom salvation flows. He's the one who planned it in eternity past. He's the one who's principally mentioned as the great elector, the one who elected his people based on his unchangeable love and foreknowledge for them. The Son is the one who came into the world and took on flesh and actually died to save them, not just to make them savable, but to save them, to carry away their sins forever. He's also the one who sits in heaven glorified in human flesh, interceding for his people that he died for. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes to regenerate us and lives with us in an abiding manner, The spirit, once he enters, will not leave forever or forsake the temple that he has deemed his own. Once he enters it, once he's made us born again, the Bible says we have been made born again by an indestructible seed. Our new birth cannot be undone. I've never heard of and never seen a person who has been unborn again. It's not possible. Because the seed that gives us new birth, the Holy Spirit, can't be destructed. Wow. And here it is. We think all of it depends on us. And Paul says, no wonder you have a hard time with joy, Philippians. Get a little bit of my confidence. Get a little bit of my certainty, he says. He began it. He'll finish it. Look at his portfolio. He's stuck with people over time. And he'll do it with you. I'm sure of it. Now, lastly, what does it not mean? We want to spend a little time here because we've already mentioned one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean if you have ever professed to be a Christian or said you're a Christian, that means you're going to go to heaven. That's not true because many profess and then walk away from their profession. There is a real thing called apostasy. Uh, Y'all ever heard that word, apostasy? Apostasy. Falling away from the faith or backsliding out of the faith completely. There is a real thing called that. But what you're seeing in those situations are people who have professed and who have been very closely related to faith and the faith community, but who, it turns out, did not have a genuine experience of the new birth and so fell away and, you know, fully revealed themselves as being those who do not and really did not believe the Apostle John writes in one of his letters, If they, had gone, if they didn't, um, or because they went out from among us, they have proved that they were never of us. Speaking about some folks who had completely disowned Christ in the churches that he pastored. If someone utterly disowns Christ, uh, it reveals a need for conversion. That they have not probably been converted before. Although we'll see in a minute, there's a chance that maybe they have. Because one of the things, perseverance, doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that Christians cannot fall into sin bad. All right, so let's talk about a few of these things. What does perseverance not mean? When Paul says, I am convinced that it will be finished with you, he's not saying to the Philippians, you're not able to sin or to sin badly. Raise your hand if you know Christians can sin badly. Bigly, (laughs) you might say. Indeed, uh, Christians can sin extraordinarily badly. Uh, in fact, the Bible teaches us through example that Christians, especially when we neglect the means that God has given us to preserve our spiritual life, can fall into, some, into more grievous sins at times even than non-Christians. Because God uses that unfaithfulness to humble us by our sins that we fall into. Let me, you can probably think of a few examples, but let me give you... Some, uh, first of all, the whole nation of Israel. That's an example. Almost as a whole, the nation of Israel failed to use the means that God gave to grow their spiritual life. And what happened? The prophets had to come to Israel at the exile and say, Israel, you're worse than Egypt. You're worse than the Canaanites who were in the land before you. You've sinned bad. And you've done that so that I might discipline you and humble you and bring you, or at least a remnant of you, back to myself. All right, let's talk about the king that we've been speaking about on Sunday morning. What's his name? Not Saul. David. Was David a true believer? 110% if there is such a thing. Yes. Did he sin grievously? Did he fall so far? And how long, by the way, did it take for David to repent of that sin? The particular one I'm mentioning is the adultery and the basically murder of Uriah. How long did it take him? It tells you. Until Nathan came, came, it was a year. So here you have an example of a real believer who fell hard and scandalously and brought all kinds of trouble on himself in doing it and he remained hardened in that sin for a year before God finally had humbled him and brought him to a place of repentance. Uh, David was a believer, and yet that happened. How about Jonah? What did our man Jonah do? He was a believer, but he went in exactly the opposite way God told him to go because he didn't want to do what God told him to do because he was afraid the outcome might be Mercy for the Ninevites. And here's Jonah uh, sitting up under a tree complaining, acting like he's going to die because the tree has withered and the sun's too hot. A believer falling into very embarrassing sin, which humbles Jonah. How about in the New Testament? Can you think of somebody? Peter. How did Peter sin? Denied Christ. Not one time. Was it twice? No. Three times. The last time with an oath and a curse that he did not even know Jesus. You remember what Jesus said to Peter before that happened? Satan wants to sift you. What does he say next? Prayed for you. So that when you are turned, what does he say next? You will strengthen the brothers. Here you have an example of not only a Christian sinning big, but Jesus telling the Christian he's going to sin big, and he still sins big. Can you relate to that? <laughs> if you've been a good student of your own life, you've seen that movie. Where you've heard God say loud and clear, "Clear, don't do that. And boom, you find yourself doing it and weeping over it. And that's one of the ways God uses to humble us and to bring us to a closer dependence on himself. Perseverance does not mean we can't fall into sin, even big sin. Christians can it also doesn't mean that Christians cannot incur God's displeasure when they sin. It's very true, this is true, that the wrath, the vengeful wrath of God is satisfied at the cross and that a Christian will never have to face the condemning wrath of God ever again. That is absolutely true. No matter what a Christian does, you'll never face the condemnation of God. However, fatherly displeasure... Will definitely happen when you sin and when I sin the Bible says that God disciplines the people that he loves so that when Christians sin they can expect to not experience the sunshine of God's face until they turn and repent until they make it right with God they can expect gloom darkness a dark night of the soul or maybe dark days of the soul think about David again It took him a while, a year of misery, for him to be brought to the end of himself. Scripture talks about how God hides his face sometimes from his people in order to wake them up in the midst of their sin. Sometimes he brings terrors of conscience and other things to wake them up again from their sin. The perseverance of the saints does not mean God is never displeased with his people because of their sin. Listen, God is always displeased with sin. No matter who does it. But the good news is, it's not condemning. God's displeasure now is a constructive, a disciplinary, loving, fatherly displeasure that leads us to repentance. And then lastly, perseverance does not mean that we can't hurt ourselves or others by our sins. Christians are not made immune from the consequences or the judgments that might come in this life for the things that we do. Sin has consequences, and God doesn't always shield us from those consequences. When Paul says the Philippians, God will finish the work he began, he's not saying, it doesn't matter what you do, God will cover it all, and nothing bad will ever happen because you sin. No, actually, God's aim is that you would abound in love more and more. God is going to declare war on your sin more than he declares war on the sins of unbelievers because God is committed to fully eradicating sin in your life fully. And you should just, you should join him in that activity. You got to learn how to discern what is good and what is excellent and pure and blameless to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which means that God is going to allow sometimes our bad decisions, not just sometimes, but all the time, our bad decisions to lead to bad outcomes so that we might learn. We should not have a too, what I'm saying is we should not have a too flat view of this Sometimes this is spoken of in a very flat way. If you prayed a prayer one time, you're going to go to heaven. Doesn't matter what you do. God can never be angry with you again. Just be happy. You're going to go to heaven. And what the Bible is trying to tell us is something far richer than that. That those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are in Jesus Christ in union. So that the holiness of Jesus Christ is becoming our holiness. We are growing in holiness. Which means that we have a dynamic relationship with God. Where God is always speaking to us, disciplining us, correcting us, training us in righteousness depending on what's going on in our lives. And he's always doing it gently, he's always doing it kindly, he's always doing it wisely. So that by the end of our lives we'll be ready to die. And so that when we die we'll be ready for heaven. Isn't that good? He who began a good work will bring it to completion. I am certain of that. Which means as a Christian, what happens when I do sin and I feel God's displeasure? What should I do? Should I run from God and hide? No. Why don't, I have, why don't I run from God and hide? Well, you can't. Yes. But besides that, I know his, his, his displeasure is for my good. He's not convicting me because he hates me and is giving me a taste of hell. He's convicting me because he loves me and wants to get the hell out of me. Right? You know what I mean by that? He's pulling hell out of me. All the wickedness that is naturally in me, he's getting it out by disciplining me like a father would a son. How many sons like their dad's discipline while it's happening? And yet, when a father disciplines lovingly, how many sons, when they get older, are, are glad for their father's discipline? Probably Most when it's done lovingly. And the Lord our God is the most loving Father who always finishes the loving work that He sets out to do in our lives. And so rejoice. Rejoice, Paul says. Grace once begun is grace that will continue until you make it home. Grace once begun is grace that will continue until we all make it home to the day of Jesus Christ, to being with Him and like Him forever and ever. Are you all excited? It, it excites me. Now, it is cheap joy to just simply say, yeah, I covered my bases by praying a prayer at eight years old. That's cheap joy. Here's real joy. God has been at work. He's been doing a good work in me. And yeah, I'm still in many ways a mess, but God is at work. And so I've seen the portfolio. I know what God can do with a mess like me, and I'm, I'm still here, and he's still here, and I'm in. Heaven is my future home, and nothing in this world can pluck me out of his hand or stop or abort the work that God has begun perseverance of the saints the doctrines of God's sovereign and mighty grace hopefully it blessed you as we looked at it over these several weeks